Welcome to this evening's City Club of Idaho Falls broadcast. Tonight's program features Judge Randy Smith of Pocatello, member of the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, and the topic, Preserving Judicial Independence. The forum took place this past Friday at the Benyon Student Union Building in Idaho Falls. Visit ifcityclub.com for more details about City Club meetings. Support for this broadcast comes from the ISU Federal Credit Union, serving Southeast Idaho's educational community since 1952, and by the Marshall Public Library, whose collaboration with public radio helps to diversify and widen broadcast capabilities. Please stay with us for this hour of the City Club of Idaho Falls. It is a, an unusual pleasure for me today to have the opportunity to uh, introduce to you Judge Smith, who is our program. This was not by design, this was by default. Normally, David Adler would be our uh, moderator, and uh, many of you come to these uh, luncheons, I think, with the idea that David is as at least uh, entertaining and important to hear from as are and as have been a number of our speakers. I, I, I am sorry if I disappoint you in my presence here in his absence, but uh, it is a privilege for me, being a member of the bar and being a personal friend of Randy Smith's, to have the opportunity to introduce him to you today. An audience that I think knows Randy every bit as well as you all know me, so the introduction is a formality, but nonetheless an important one in this case. Randy Smith is clearly one of us. He was born in southeastern Idaho, uh, was raised in a large farm family there, went to public schools uh, in southeastern Idaho, and then went on to Brigham Young University, where he got a degree in accounting, magna cum laude, and thereafter went on to law school at the J. Reuben Clark Law School and received his law degree there. Shortly after that, he began a career of teaching, which uh, is a career he continues even to today. He's taught at Brigham Young, he's taught at Boise State, he's taught at Idaho State, and continues to teach at Idaho State University, teaching accounting, business law, taxation, and related subjects. Also a member of the political science faculty there, and sometimes found uh, in debate with our distinguished usual moderator, David Adler. Uh, Randy finds himself in a philosophic place that offers a certain point and counterpoint with David that many of you will understand. So uh, they enjoy each other and know each other and respect each other uh, enormously. Uh, after Randy graduated from law school and began a teaching career, he went soon to the practice of law uh, joining the J.R. Simplot Company in its office of general counsel. He was there for a number of years before going into private practice with the firm of Merrill and Merrill and Pocatello, where he was for 14 years, having a wide variety of litigation experience in both our state and federal courts. Following that experience, he went to the 6th District Court bench in Pocatello where he was a district court trial judge for the state of Idaho and distinguished himself considerably in that position. Many of the lawyers in this room will remember Randy and do remember Randy as a trial judge. He was superb in that role. In addition to that role, he was a great believer and remains a great believer in what is referred to as alternative dispute resolution. He believes that the process of mediation brings people together in a way that helps them to solve their own disputes in an effective way and a much more effective and predictable way than sometimes can be done in the trial process. While he was a district judge, he mediated approximately 100 cases a year for not only people litigating in his court, but for judges throughout Idaho. And uh, from my personal experience, I can say to you that he resolved some of the most difficult disputes I ever had, and did so for many other members of the bar of this state. 
a truly distinguished contribution to the jurisprudence and to the uh, delivery of justice uh, in our civil justice system in Idaho. It was then in uh, 2006 that uh, President George W. Bush uh, began flirting, and I choose that word uh, consciously, with uh, Judge Smith uh, with the idea that he might be appointed to the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. At that time, we had two vacancies in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for which Judge Smith was thought to be eligible. Uh, both uh, Justice Stephen, Judge Stephen Trott and Judge Tom Nelson had taken senior status and uh, therefore created a vacancy on the Ninth Circuit Court. Uh, and both of those judges, uh, many of you in the room know them, are residents of the state of Idaho. And therefore, it was presumed that they were Idaho vacancies. So the first vacancy for which Judge Smith was appointed uh, at least nominated, uh, was that vacancy of just Judge Trott. And uh, controversy developed, uh, as often is the case. Uh, the United States Senate and, uh, and Senator Feinstein from California believed that that spot that Judge Trott holds, held, was a California judge and not an Idaho judge. So the process of the separation of powers. The president nominates, the Senate confirms, and if they confirm, the president then appoints. But uh, in this case, the Senate did not move to a confirmation. And the reason was because Senator Feinstein essentially put a hold on that nomination. Well, finally, things got arranged properly. Tom Nelson, who, by the way, uh, many of you also know, grew up in this community and served with great distinction on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, was the vacancy that uh, Judge Randy Smith was then appointed for. And he attained the very unique distinction, and it is indeed unique, of having the unanimous approval of the American Bar Association's uh, our association standing committee on the federal judiciary unanimously rated him to be well qualified for the position. Uh, that was the committee that Mark mentioned I at one time chaired. I was not on the committee at the time of Judge Smith's nomination. He was then approved by the United States Senate in an even more remarkable vote, 100 percent. So uh, his eventual uh, ascension, if you will, to the uh, distinguished uh, Circuit Court of Appeals with, with the unanimous blessing of the American Bar and the unanimous vote of the United States Senate. Remarkable. Uh, we are truly uh, uh, served well by Randy Smith. He has treated his life and his professional life not just as one of a lawyer who does the work of his clients one at a time, but he has viewed his role as one of a public citizen. And many lawyers choose to do that. Uh, very few choose to do it as well as Judge Smith has done it, having served in scores of different ways for the Bar Association and for his community over the years that he has lived and practiced law and shared his life with those of us in eastern Idaho. But he has, as I mentioned, been a teacher. Uh, he has served the Civic City uh, Symphony in Pocatello. Uh, he has been a Boy Scout leader. And he has been honored by those organizations which he has served so ably through the years. So it is with great pleasure and with great respect that I present to you and ask you to join me in welcoming Judge Randy Smith as our speaker. Uh, you can all see why I have already retained Tim to speak at my funeral <laughs> and uh, give the oration and obituary on my behalf and then I'll just go to the grave. 
And if God won't put me in the heaven all in that, then I don't know. I'll never get there. Uh, I very much appreciate your remarks, Tim, and uh, he's such an orator. He's such an orator. The juries are all convinced by what he says. The judges, they all say, when will Tim get another one just like that? He's going to get them. And poor defense lawyers, what do they do when they're sat with him giving the first speech to the jury? Well, they worry about it, that's for sure. And when he's on the defense side, the plaintiff better be good. And uh, so I very much appreciate that introduction. I was kind of brought here a little bit under different circumstances. I was sitting in my office one day when the guy who you just uh, heard talk to you called me on the phone. And uh, he's a pretty believable guy, and he calls me on the phone and he says, now Randy, um, you're on the Ninth Circuit now, yes. Uh, you do believe on the Ninth in the Ninth Circuit uh, in free speech, don't you? Well, yeah, I do. Well, then I want you to come and give one. <laughs> And uh, so, with that, I was uh, caught. And now you're going to hear the free speech that I'm about to give. It was interesting, the topic that I was assigned, because judicial independence. I was interested with that topic. Uh, I was interested with it because I started thinking about some things, you know. Uh, my first thought, well, Adam had it really good in his day. Why was that? Well, he knew nobody had said anything before him, so he could say whatever he wanted to. So Adam had it pretty good. I also thought, because uh, in a way I feel a little bit like Elizabeth Taylor's eighth husband. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know how to keep it interesting. <laughs> judicial independence and so uh, I, uh, I worried about it to be fair and uh, that's where I am before I begin however I want to at least tell you that I feel a little bit like these people on the first day of school a first grader handed his teacher a note from his mother the note read the opinions expressed by this child are not necessarily those of his parents. <laughs> well, I must uh, give you the normal disclaimer. The opinions of this child are not necessarily the opinions of the circuit. <laughs> I am the baby judge on the circuit. You may not know that. I was appointed the last. Uh, President Bush only had one appointment in his last term to our circuit, that was me, and that was in January, and he had two years left, but we never got anybody else appointed, and in fact, his appointments to many of the circuit positions were left vacant in the last two years. Not necessarily because of him, but sometimes, and other times because he couldn't get them through. So I am the baby judge, and I hurry to tell you that what I'm about to tell you today is my own thought, and I'm talking to you as my colleagues and my friends. Uh, you've heard from Tim. You can only look around this room and you can see the likes of others, uh, Hansons, Harrises, uh, any number of people that are out here, good attorneys, I could mention them all, but you know, the problem is that you get this job and any one of them I'm sure could do a great job at what they're do at what I'm doing. I think to some extent it's being the right guy at the right time, but nonetheless you bring with you an Idaho tradition and with that Idaho tradition I want to talk about judicial independence. I want to talk generally about a case. If you, I don't know anybody here who's necessarily been in my, my class at Idaho State, 
but I want to begin by talking about a case. I want to begin by talking about this case because that's the way I begin in my class. And my class is about the judges in a democratic system or the judges in our system. And I talk about this case because it has history behind it. The Newsweek has a little article about this case I noted, but I don't talk about it because the Newsweek did. I talk about it because I truly believe it's important to talk about this case as it relates to judicial independence. The case is Marbury versus Madison. For many of you who haven't ever heard of that before, I'll just give you some background. You think we've got problems today. You should have been there when Thomas Jefferson took over. Uh, when he took over, uh, President Washington had been in for two terms, and he didn't believe in parties, but he generally was a Federalist. And the next person was the Vice President under him, and that was President Adams. President Adams was a Federalist, believed in Federalism, and his Vice President, because in those days, the Vice President was the one who got the second most votes, not necessarily his vice president, but whoever was the second most votes, was Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was not a Federalist. In fact, he was a Republican Democrat or a Democratic Republican. You take it for where you want. In any way, in the final days of the John Adams administration, President Adams tried to appoint as many Federalists to the national judiciary as he could. One of those that he appointed was the new Chief Justice, John Marshall. That was also Thomas Jefferson's cousin, but not because Thomas Jefferson wanted him. They hated each other, the cousins. So John Marshall was there, but the ones that have to do with Madison, Marbury versus Madison, are those who were appointed to Justice of the Peace in Washington, D.C. Marbury and his compatriots were appointed to Justice of the Peace. Now, many of you may say, why would that have anything to do with the president? Well, the Constitution says that the president picks the judges in Washington, D.C., and the Senate confirms them the same as they do in any other federal judicial spot. So anyway, Marbury and his friends were appointed by President Adams. The Senate had confirmed them. However, John Marshall, excited to get on the Supreme Court, I guess, I don't know why, did not deliver their commission. Now you all say, what's that? I thought, what's that, when I read it the first time? What does it matter? They've got the President's appointment. They've got the Senate confirmation. Why do they need a commission? Well, this is their paper that says they're really able to act. So having not been delivered this paper, President Jefferson, who didn't want the Federalists in, said to his Secretary of State, James Madison, don't give them their commission. Don't let them be judges. We don't want those Federalists. We want our own party, and we don't want them. So the case was originally filed pursuant to the latest pronouncements of the Congress. The case was filed in the Supreme Court of the United States. And John Marshall, the Chief Justice, had to write an opinion about that. Now, the first thing, President, President Jefferson didn't even think he needed to respond to this complaint. But the Supreme Court told him to respond. For the Supreme Court telling him to respond, the Democratic Republicans shut down the Supreme Court for a year. And they were not able to even meet in the Supreme Court building. They had to meet in John Marshall's house. So anyway, finally the Supreme Court got it together and they ruled. And they ruled certain things. And the important part of this is what I'm getting to here. They ruled, number one, that the Constitution gave the courts the right to decide what the law was. 
Now, if you look in the Constitution itself, you'll not find that. There's nothing in there that says the courts are the one. But that was the rule. Second was, the president and Mr. Madison were out to lunch. They'd all had the appointment, they'd all got confirmed, just the mere fact of delivering them a piece of paper wasn't anything and they should have delivered it. And then Justice Marshall did the very surprising thing. And this was the, the, the measure of his work. He said, however, we have the power to, under the Constitution to strike down the law that says you came here first. That's not right. If you read the Constitution, you shouldn't have come to the Supreme Court first. We're not an original jurisdiction court for this stupid matter. So we're striking that down. And we're saying that you can't set these Federalists because they should go down to the lower courts and come back up before they get set. So they were saying, in effect, that President Jefferson won. Now, I want us to look at that decision. Why do I want to look at it? You won't know, but next Monday is the 204th anniversary of that decision. Not only that, but that decision talks about three things that I think are important for us to talk about if we're going to talk about judicial independence. And I see my time's running fast, so I'll hurry. First of all, it talks about the American system. The American system is built on the idea that judges should be completely independent of the other two branches of government. In fact, in Federalist number 78, Alexander, trying to get the Constitution passed, Alexander Hamilton, explained why the complete independence of the courts was particularly essential. Hamilton said that the judges needed to be different from the legislature and different from the executive because that was the best way to guarantee a steady, upright, and impartial administration of the law. He also argued in Federalist 78 that judicial independence was necessary in order to safeguard, and this is the important part, the injury of private rights of particular classes of citizens by unjust and partial laws. Now remember, this is Hamilton arguing as to why we're to adopt the Constitution. Remember the background of this, in that this was a time when the Constitution was being adopted when the states had a lot of state rights. They did not want to give up their state rights to a federal government. They wanted to keep those rights and they were worried about the Constitution and the articles therein that made a pretty strong federal government and they wanted to do something in order to keep these rights. And if you remember very much about it, you remember how they not only had to do that, but Madison had to write a couple other Federalist papers about why we will immediately pass the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, which the first 10 amendments is the Bill of Rights, saying that the people have rights that the government cannot take, that among those are, they didn't say life, liberty, and happiness, but they said freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of press, right to bear arms, search and seizure, the right to a lawyer, the right to due process, the right to have a jury trial, those kind of things. They were rights that we had. They were rights the government could not take from us, even though we were putting together this big federal government. And then in the Ninth Amendment, and this is one many of us forget sometimes, they said just because we've enumerated all these rights in the first eight, right not to have cruel and unusual punishment, the right to religion, just because we've enumerated all these doesn't mean we haven't got more that we didn't think to put down. That's what they said. And so the judiciary comes in. The American system, which was put together then more by Marbury versus Mar Madison 
that this was to be an independent branch of the government, that they were to ensure that the injury of private rights of particular citizens by unjust and impartial laws not be had. In other words, that this judiciary was to protect, if you will, the minority from the majority. That we were to protect the rights of the Constitution even when the President and the Congress wanted to take it away from you. Now that's a different style. That's a different thing. The Constitution was formed, the judges were put together, the Federalist Papers were done. So what were we supposed to do? Well, leading to an independent judiciary then, we're supposed to do things on an objective basis to the best of our ability. We're supposed to decide the case with impartiality. We're supposed to decide the case according to established legal principles. We're supposed to use logic and policies underlying the relevant law to fill in the gaps when we can't come with that. What does that say? Well, lawyers that are sitting around at your table will talk to you about these kind of concepts as a result of that. We take each case on a step-by-step -step basis. We talk about standard of review for procedure, something I'm constantly harping to my colleagues on the Ninth Circuit about. Standard of review. The district judge is right there on the scene. The district judge is right there listening to the argument. Are we to take every one of his decisions and overrule them just because we're sitting up there and our idea is different? How are we to review? Is it an abuse of discretion or is it a de novo review? If it's de novo, we can supplant our own opinion. If it's an abuse of discretion, we cannot. We're supposed to see if what he's done is so bad that he's abused his discretion. What about in the interpretation of a statute? We're supposed to look at the plain language of the statute and not read our own idea into it. Only time we can get there is when it's ambigu ambiguous. Ambiguity. I can't even say it. I'm from Thatcher. So that's where we're supposed to go. So that's the judge's role to protect their own independence. Then I want to talk to you about the second verse, because I'm running out of time. I could talk to you more about that verse, but I want to talk to you about the second verse. Judges are truly supposed to forget who got them where they are. They're truly supposed to get what their biases are. That's not our job to in inject our bias into what we do. So, the first thing I like about Marbury versus Madison is that the court laid out the American system. But the second thing I like about Marbury versus Madison is here's Justice Marshall. He's the guy who forgot to give these judges their papers. He's the one that went off to the Supreme Court and was writing big stuff. He didn't do his job. But rather than get these Federalists their job, he said, I've got to choose the better part. President Jefferson is right. I don't have the right to do that. And he was a Federalist, and he didn't like President Jefferson. And he'd love to have had his friends get on the court. But he said, even though I'm a Federalist, unless these judges can get their case back to me, they're not going to have their job. What was he really saying? Well, most of you who are litigating cases know before they get to the Supreme Court, you're dead. So Marbury had to go find another job. So in effect, he was killing their opportunity. Now that's what judges are supposed to do. They're supposed to forget what got them there, and they're supposed to forget what their biases are and do what they do the way it ought to be done. Now, we have this opportunity every day. I had an opportunity, I wasn't on the bench very long. And some geek, and I say geek, and I, well, that's the kind of a nice term to use, but nonetheless, <laughs> suggested that I ought to rule on term limits. Now, I don't expect many of you remember that. 
But Sheila and I, we were off at the Republican convention. We were putting term limits right in the platform. Get rid of these politicians as soon as we can. Let's not let them there for too long. I mean, that was our deal. And yet that case came to me, and the question was, was it constitutional to throw somebody out because they'd been there that long? Even though I believed it, even though I thought they ought to be gone, was it constitutional? And I had to look then at the Constitution of the state of Idaho, because they weren't talking about the federal Constitution, they were talking about Idaho's Constitution. And I said, hey, I've looked at it, the only ones the framers wanted out of there were the Mormons and the Chinese and the Negroes, and <laughs> that was it. They weren't talking about those who'd been in for a long time. So I guess unless they want to pass a constitutional amendment, they can't just legislate it. They are taking people's rights away from them. And there were Republicans, I don't remember Sheila writing me, but there were Republicans who wrote me and said what a geek I was. That I'd had finally a time to get rid of all these Democrats and I wasn't doing it and I was a geek and how did I ever get that job? And remember who got you there, Judge? And I thought about it. But let's take that a little wider. That happens with federal appointments. I mean, we are when we're there. I'm sure there are, President Bush is thinking to himself time and time again, looking at what, my, what I'm doing. He may be saying, what the devil did I do, let Smith in there? That guy's a geek, I don't know why. But let's think about it in a different way. What about the election of judges? I want you to think about that. Every person, group, or company could find itself the minority or a party with less financial or political clout when in an opponent to an election. A business may have a financial superiority when compared to an individual, but then it could be crushed by anti-competitive practices of a larger entity. And why should it be the guy who puts up the most money who wins? Now, there's nobody who can run, these, run for these offices without a little money from some of you. And mostly they tap the pocket of the lawyers. But think about it. Since 1999, candidates for the state Supreme Courts have raised over $150 million in an effort to win or keep their seats. More than half of that amount was raised in just four states, Alabama, Ohio, Illinois, and Texas. In 2006, Supreme Court candidates in Alabama, Ohio, Oregon, and Washington wrote the million-dollar mark before Labor Day with their campaign contributions. Now, what am I saying? When I'm talking about judicial independence, and I'm not waging in, I'm a Ninth Circuit judge, I can't wade in, but you're the people who are thinking about this. Your state district judges are in campaigns to keep their offices. Do you want to sit there with someone else having paid the majority amount of getting them in and you be the opposite party? The magistrate judges, not quite the same, selected by a magistrate commission, but then have to run to see if they keep their job. When we're talking about judges truly supposed to forget who got them where they are and what their biases are, are we putting a damper on that by that process? I don't know. I'm just, since we're here dialoguing together in the city club, I'm asking you to think about that. That's the second part of the Marbury versus Madison decision that I really think's good because it says I'm supposed to forget. And I think it's part of judicial independence. The last part of the Marbury versus Madison decision which I want to talk about is that that decision formed the American system for the ages. In the midst of diversity, controversy, problems of unknown magnitude, there was a man, John Marshall, 
and his compatriots who wrote, if my students always give me the business, 102 pages about something that didn't mean anything, and then said in one page, we didn't have the power to do what we said, because they wanted to establish a principle. Now for me, judicial independence is important. To me, we need somebody who stands outside the people to suggest if the Constitution says we can do it. If the Constitution doesn't talk about it or doesn't say it's wrong, then the people ought to decide. If, however, on the other hand, the Constitution says it's wrong, then it ought not to happen. And there are many times where the Constitution doesn't talk. And at that point, the people decide. And if the people decide the Constitution is wrong, what is Amendment 5 about? It says how to amend the Constitution. So if the people don't like what the Constitution is saying, why not amend it? Well, it takes a long time to get an amended judge. It's a bad deal. How do we get three-fourths of all the legislators together? It's not easy, but that's the way it was set out to be. And the judges then are to suggest, even in times of diversity and controversy, where we ought to go. Now then, for me, judicial independence says three things. Number one, judges have a way to make their decisions and they ought to use it. Number two, we ought not be partial. We're gonna have to shed where we were and deal with the law as it is. As a, as a Ninth Circuit judge, one of my best friends in the Republican Party came up to me and said, I can't wait till you get, a, get, till you get that abortion case, judge. You'll strike down that old abortion law as quickly as you can. And I said, I'm bound by precedent here. You'll find me saying it's okay. He said, what'd we get you there for? Well, I mean, that's the bottom line. I have a certain way that I have to go if I'm going to be a judge and be totally independent. And then last, that we make good decisions that can last through the ages. Now for me, that's judicial independence. I don't think it's judicial independence is helped by people saying, oh, those judges are bad and we ought to shoot them and we can't wait to get rid of them. And I don't think it's either good to say they all belong to the ACLU, so get rid of them. Or they all are Democrats, so get rid of them. That's what they'd say in Idaho Falls. That's why I threw that out there. <laughs> in Pocatello, the Republicans get rid of them. But all I'm saying is, it seems to me that judicial independence embraces those two things with all that it has. And me, whether I was the Republican chairman and sat hand in hand with Sheila and others trying to make it where we were going to go and get candidates elected, when I got this job, my Republican tie went in the drawer. Because we're to do what we have to do based on principle now. And that to me is a part of judicial independence. And it's only when we don't do it that way and some of my colleagues do not, that we have then those who call out to have their view instilled in the process. Well, guy has got to close with something good. <laughs> Two duck hunters ran into one another early in the morning. One of them noticed that the other's dog was just sitting there had no interest in retrieving any of the fowl his master had shot. The first hunter said, what's the matter with your dog? The last time I saw him, he was one of the best dogs I've ever seen. The other hunter replied, his name is Lawyer. He used to run all over creation, working hard, getting the job done. Then one day, someone made the stake of calling him Judge. Now all he does is sit there and bark. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, to me, judicial independence is important. And that's why I wanted you to talk to you about the ramifications of it and what it means to you as citizens in this community 
and in our state. Thank you. Well, let me say, I have been fascinated, Judge, with what you had to say, and uh, I will say to this audience something it already knows. It is a very rare event to have a judge speak to us as candidly, as forthrightly, and so understandably as Judge Randy Smith has just spoken to us. Now, Judge, that comment in part uh, springs from the uh, fact that, that judges uh, and courts are cloistered, we believe. Uh, ivory towers, oftentimes, that the public has little opportunity to see into. So one of your listeners out here is very curious about how a Ninth Circuit judge spends his day. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? <laughs> well, it depends on where I am. <laughs> uh, that's a very good question. Uh, in general, this judge has his chambers in Pocatello. Uh, therefore, I have four law clerks, two of which are back there on the back, which uh, Carol Wiesenberg, David Dance, came up to see me do this. Four, two others are working still, and one judicial assistant. Those uh, four people, uh, four law clerks and one judicial assistant, helped me to sit on, at best, probably about 350 cases per year. Of those 350 cases, I have to digest them before I go to a hearing. Then I have to ask questions when I get to the hearing. Then I have to vote about what I'm going to do after the hearing. And then I have to write an opinion if I'm assigned to write the opinion about it thereafter. So my day is spent in reading and analyzing and writing and reading and writing and analyzing. Uh, we do have a nice job in that we live in Pocatello. Thank goodness we live in Idaho because every so often, about twice a month for a week, we'll get on the airplane and go to San Francisco or Seattle or Portland or Pasadena and once in a while Hawaii and Alaska, if we have enough gray hair, and get to sit there. But we're there sitting with those cases and that's when we have our hearings and then we come home and write about them. So in general, that's our job. Now I've seen San Francisco, at least the hotel, and I see the, the supper at night, uh, the whatever hotel we go to to eat, but we get up and go to the court at 7, and we come home about 7.30. The reason we go at 7 and come at 7.30 is that's the only time when we get our three people together to make our decisions. So we want to make them while we're there together so that we can make those happen. So we're in nice cities, but we don't see many of them. I would lie if I said I haven't been to a Giants game. And I love to get up every morning at 5 a.m. and walk from my hotel down around Giant Stadium and back every morning because you can touch the seal where Barry Bonds hit the home run. You can touch Juan Marshall's monument. You can touch Willie May's monument and then come back. And as a kid, they were my heroes. But that's the general day of a Ninth Circuit judge. Thank you for that question. Someone else wants to know, uh, because of the prominence of your mediating skills when you were on a state district court, uh, whether you've had the opportunity to exercise your skills at mediation since you've been on the Ninth Circuit. That's all I do. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, just to be fair, the people who are on my circuit come from different walks of life. Some come from the college. They're law professors, and they have a certain bend to them. They want to see these issues, and they want to put that issue in perspective, and they want to make sure we talk about that issue the way they want it talked about. Others of them come from law practice, 
and they have been involved only in security work or only in bankruptcy work or only in some other work, and therefore when they get outside that work, they're also given to want to express opinion in those areas. Others of us come from the judiciary. We're more, I don't want to describe us too much, but I would say we're more practical in approach. We're saying these cases aren't all that important to decide that way. We don't all have to say all of our opinions this time. You know, sometimes you might be surprised to know that cases can be cited differently and both be right. Simply because the old judge who had the facts in front of him and the opportunity to make the decisions has some power and what evidence is admitted is an abuse of discretion and what argument is admitted is an abuse of discretion and whether the jury ought to go back and rethink it again is an abuse of discretion and unless it's really a legal issue different issues similarly may come down differently just because the jury saw it differently and therefore unless it's an abuse of discretion how they did it we're not supposed to upset it because they can see facts differently so we say look at the standard of review look at what's important if you've got a first amendment case is it truly a five there's only five sets of speech which are not protected but if it's under one of those five sets of speeches then we don't give it strict scrutiny but under those five we go into a different model and we use that review is it legal is it misleading is the state giving its true interest are they going where they need to go do they go as more than they need to go and therefore we see a standard review again which can can give us a different result on similar issues and we're more into you know you don't have to decide every case on the record which we weren't there to hear every time so getting all of those views together I've used mediation skills a lot in fact I've often said do you really need to go there we can do this here you're out there but can't you come here and that's kind of what I did as a mediator more of what I did as a mediator so I use those all the time otherwise I'm allowed to mediate federal cases only and I have taken some federal cases and mediated them thank Judge, you for that question we all frequently hear about uh, the judiciary uh, from its critics suggesting that the judges are quote legislating from the bench would you comment on how you may understand that criticism and make your comment uh, with respect to that? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. As I said, I think the judge's job is a particularly narrow one. When he leaves his job and wants to put his own views out there, rather than doing what he ought to be doing, then he can begin to legislate from the bench. Now, I know there's many of you who say, there are activist judges out there, very activist judges. Well, I want you to know there are, but they're not all on one side. <laughs> In other words, some are activist liberal and some are activist conservative. They all activate when they want to do more than just do what they're required to do. And for me then, to say they legislate from the bench, if I were to read a particular decision, I might suggest they did. But again, as I said to you, it seems to me that the judge's job, and when they really do not actively act, go from the bench, is when they establish this decision according to legal principles that are in the books. When they understand there's a standard of review by which they have to guide things when they understand that this is the standard that's been set for them to go and if it's there that's where it is whether they like it or whether they don't not trying to find a way around that 
in order to put their view out there. And one, some can say that the Supreme Court has this opportunity many times. But you have to understand that they are the highest court, and if they find something totally outside of what needs be, the law suggests even in the standard of review that they can undo what needs to be. But in general, judges legislate when they go outside of what they're called upon to do. And that's where I think they do. And I can't say they don't. I expect some of you would say maybe I do. But I am trying my best, I will give you that clue, to keep it with what I have. We just had a, we just had a case not too long ago. We were talking about the freedom of speech. And if you're talking about the freedom of speech, you're either one of the ways where you can get outside of having strict scrutiny on the speech because the law says... Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. The Supreme Court has suggested that that's applicable to all the states and all the counties and all the cities by the 14th Amendment. But the first issue there, is it truly speech that we can give protection? There are only five types that we do not give that protection. But if it's one of those five, we're going to go into a different philosophy. And I asked the lawyer, I said, which one of these five do you say this is in? Because you're suggesting that I shouldn't give strict scrutiny, but which one are you, which one are you aiming at? He said, I'm not asking for any of them, Judge. I'm asking you to create a sixth. <laughs> he didn't even say that, really, because he didn't have the guts to say that. But the end result of what his comment to me was, I want you to create a sixth. I said, sorry. That's for Justice Thomas. These other justices to do. I got their stuff to deal with. I'll get in enough hot water just being there. So make me a different argument. And, and I think that's where we have to go if we as judges are going to preserve the independence of the judiciary. When we don't go there, we are subject to criticism we rightly deserve because we're putting our own opinion out there instead of doing what is the way we ought to go. Now, I'm not saying by that you shouldn't give us roundly criticized. I love that the American public can have the opportunity to criticize anything they want. But we're here talking about reality, about what judges do and why they do it. And if they're following along with that, it's good. I would love the dialogue at the election to be not, do you believe in abortion or not? Because some judge on the state level has no opportunity about that at all. Do you believe in the death penalty? No judge on the state court level can say a thing about that. But how would you analyze that? And we never talk about that. In fact, the latest Supreme Court pronouncements suggest that candidates for judge ought to be able to say what they think about the issues. Well, yeah, they ought to say what they think, but it's irrelevant. If they're truly being good judges, what they think is irrelevant to me. Now, do we on the edge, can we really avoid it? Can we really get that all out of our system and be totally impartial? I don't know. You who know me know I have a tough time. I'm an avid. But we work at it on a day by day. We take it step by step. We analyze the way we should. And then many times we go different than what we would have normally done if we'd have been in the process itself. Judge, uh, with reference to the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, there have been a number of suggestions that, from certain quarters that the Chief Justice job should be rotated and that there should be term limits for U.S. Supreme Court justices. What are your thoughts on those subjects? Oh. <laughs> I have no thoughts, really. Um, I can't. I'm not paid to have thoughts there. <laughs> That's the Congress and the President's job. It's in the Constitution. If you're going to get that done, you've got to amend the Constitution. That's not something you can do by having some 
president decided and the senator vote for it. I will say this, and I only say it in, in the idea. I think that you grow into jobs. And therefore, I have felt reading opinions, Justice White's opinion when he first was writing them, I don't know that I truthfully agreed with everything that he would have written, but as he came to the end of his career, quite a long time into it, I, I adopt a lot of things Justice White said. He was a good justice. He thought through things. And uh, this, the biggest problem on the Supreme Court, in my mind, is that if I were doing it, I would pick those who were the best instructed in their views of any people in the United States. I'd pick the best person that could possibly articulate those ideas for the liberal side, and I'd put that lady or man right next to the person who could best articulate the principles on the other side, and I'd let them bang it out and come up with something that would be worthwhile and follow the Constitution. Some of the best opinions written I have found from those who would you, I would not necessarily have been the one you would have thought would be a convert of. Because they write succinctly, they analyze the law, they put it in the, the order that I think it needs to be put. And therefore, I think the people ought to think a long time when they're talking about impartiality of judges and whether we throw it out on a whim or not. We truly need our best thinkers on that highest court, in my book. Judge, uh, along with criticisms of the court, one of the uh, audience is interested why the courts are so seemingly unable to defend themselves against criticism in a public forum. That's a great question. I'm, I'm very thankful for you, one of you who asked that question. Judges are not supposed to ethically go out and defend themselves. In the middle of the controversy, you're not supposed to go out and say, you ought to support me. We're to write our opinions and let that be the public debate about that opinion. And the best we can do to make our, our decision is write it in the decision as we made it. We're not supposed to be out there defending it or saying this is the way we ought to do it or this is the way it ought to be done or you're dang wrong if you'd have read what I read and all that stuff. That's the public's debate and the judge is not ethically able to do that, and they don't. And therefore, we are blessed, very blessed, to have the lawyers who are in our midst, a lot of them in this congregation today, as I see them, who have taken on that responsibility of defending the judges and what they're doing, even when they didn't agree with what the judge did because they are, they are sticking up for the system. And they're the only ones who can. If the judges want, a, uh, want a, uh, an increase in pay, there's only one judge who can go to Congress and say anything about that. That's the Chief Justice. He presents our budget and says we want pay increase. And then all of you say you're already paid too much and we can't say, well, you ought to see what we have to do. No, we can't, we can't say that. That's not our job. If we're going to have that happen, it's got to be others who do our lobbying for us. We're not supposed to do that. Judge, you've been very patient with our questions. We have one more for you that you should be able to deal with easily. Um, recently, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was hospitalized for a cancer operation. She's now returned to the court, but it brings to the nation's attention the fact that there are several members of the Supreme Court of the United States who are advanced in age and who have expressed themselves uh, with an interest in retirement and others whose health may compel their retirement. How do you see 
the future of the court within the next few years? <laughs> Y'all are very nice to give me that question. Um, I'll, I'll end with this. It was interesting. I don't know if you were there in Hawaii, Tim. No. No? Uh, some, of it, some lawyers were with us in Hawaii. We had Justice Stevens in Hawaii. Justice Stevens is the one who's rumored to be the most, will, most likely to retire. Justice Stevens was on the platform. The first question asked was to Justice Stevens by some renegade lawyer, I'd say. <laughs> the judges wouldn't have dared ask him, when are you going to retire? <laughs> and he said, without any question, he says, you look at me. I can walk as far as the 60-year-olds. I'm as smart as they are. I write opinions that they can't write. I'll quit when I'm ready. <laughs> and you know, after listening to him for an hour and a half, I would say there wasn't a sharper mind in the whole audience than him. And when they ask him, how come you're so liberal? He said, I want you to read those decisions. It's those liberal guys who call themselves conservatives who aren't interpreting the Constitution. <laughs> They're activist judges. They're trying to put their own say on what this Constitution means. And he laid out why he believed that. Very, very knowledgeable. Very, very solid. And I rushed right up to get my picture taken with him. <laughs> I mean, I thought, this is the guy I want to be right next to. So, uh, I mean, I'm not going to guess. I, you know, Justice Ginsburg, one very sharp, so knowledgeable in her area of the law, so smart, and uh, she's not ready to quit. She said, I have a very good colleague on the Ninth Circuit who's one of her best friends, and I talked to Judge Hall, and she said, Ruth's not quitting. She loves this job. So I don't know how it's going to happen, and I don't know who will go. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because you think about it. Justice O'Connor stepped down only because she thought she should step down now, and then somebody else would have another two years and step down then. And no, long, no sooner had she stepped down, then the Chief Justice died. And we had a man who was nominated for Justice O'Connor's spot. All of a sudden, we had Chief Justice John Roberts nominated then for the Chief Justice job. And then we had another position. So they don't know, but they, they, uh, from everything I've been around them, they're all very sharp, very knowledgeable, I'd hate to be in a debate with them. You heard Tim Hopkins' introduction, the way he gives it. They're just as good and better. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I would not guess. I just would not guess when they would step down. They are so involved. I was, I was just shocked. I went back for the junior judges seminar, baby judges. We all went back. We had a, a room like this in the Supreme Court. Here's this Idaho kid from Thatcher, Idaho, sitting there in the Supreme Court of the United States. All these nine judges running in, shaking our hands. I thought, how did I get here? <laughs> me. Keep me. Here I am. I started pinching myself. But you know, it was the most interesting. The first justice who came to me was Justice Souter. And I thought, Justice Souter. Right. The way I always bow. And you, so you know what he said? He said, Judge Smith, I've been reading about your confirmation. I know what you went through. He says, in my book, there are two Idaho seats. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, I, you know? and so they knew me. I was surprised. I mean, of the nine who were there, 
there were eight who said something about my qualifications to sit in this job. I was just shocked because there was this geek from Idaho, you know. And to think that they were involved and they knew and they were on top of things. I don't know how it's going to go. It's going to be interesting. And, uh, and I surely hope that we can get back to things that are really judicial independence and make that a part of picking the next one. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming, and thank you all for your excellent questions. We look forward to seeing you next month. And thank you very much, Judge Smith. Archived City Club broadcasts are available at ifcityclub.com. The program is recorded in Idaho Falls at the Benyon Student Union Building. This is KISU Pocatello 91.1, 91.3 for Idaho Falls listeners. Support for City Club broadcasts from the Marshall Public Library and the ISU Federal Credit Union. Fresh Air is next.